0: Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Ben Stockdale.
1: Hello, Squeaky Clean listeners. This is Jarvis Arrington. The intern for the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast.
0: Bringing the latest in clean
1: energy right to your ears. Yes, sir. Now, personally, I am extremely excited for today's show. We've been talking about today's guest for a while now. Um, this is the...
0: da, 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 da. da, da. <laughs> I don't know anything past that part, but this is the NASA episode. NASA! NASA, ladies and
1: gentlemen. Yeah.
0: Yes, we are really excited to bring y'all some content from the organization that brought you the moon landing. Yep. And, uh, and so much more. They really do bring a lot to clean energy. They do a lot of R&D work that essentially gets us clean energy technologies as spin-off technologies from what they're working on on their space missions. And uh, we also talked to a senior research scientist from NASA, about the data that they're collecting on radiation. So if you are a utility-scale solar developer, you might particularly find this episode interesting because you might find some new ways to cite your projects, potentially. So really exciting stuff in this show. Most definitely. Now, Ben, where are we headed for today's country shout-out? Yes, we are saying Vitai. To our friends in Poland. Yeah, Vitae, Vitae. And Jarvis, who's getting our city shout-out today?
1: Uh, We are giving a squeaky clean shout-out to our listeners in Durham, North Carolina. Yes. Not so far from here.
0: Yes, and that is pronounced D-U-R-M, Durham. (laughs) Durham, (laughs) Durham. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. Well, Bull City, thanks so much for listening. Our good old neighbors over there, to the I guess to the west of Raleigh.
1: I guess, uh, a part of the Research Triangle. So right, right,
0: exactly, exactly. Well, Jarvis, without further ado, should we jump into this show? Let's get into it. Clean energy. Clean clean, clean, clean. energy. Our guest today is the technology transfer program executive at NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C., responsible for agency level management of NASA intellectual property and the transfer of NASA technology to promote the commercialization and public availability of federally owned inventions to benefit the national economy and the U.S. public. Our guest today oversees policy, strategy, resources, and the direction for the agency's technology commercialization efforts. NASA has had a long history of finding new innovative uses for its space and aeronautics technologies, and our guest is the agency's leading authority on these technologies in their practical terrestrial applications we are so excited to have him on the pod today so friends of the pod let's give a squeaky clean welcome to today's guest dan lockney dan welcome to the pod hey ben thanks
2: for having me glad to be here
0: yeah we are so glad to have you and uh i was i was doing you know my my usual background research i saw that your dogs are named astro and cosmo which uh, is pretty fitting seeing that you work for NASA. I'm curious, did you come up with that name before you started working at NASA or has space always been top of mind for you?
2: Somewhere in the middle. Space hasn't always been top of mind, but the dogs did come after the uh, the NASA career started.
0: Got you. Okay, and, and and they're heading out to space pretty soon, yeah? These guys, they might go in the backyard pretty soon,
2: but that's about as far as they're going to go.
0: Got you, got you, got you. Well, hey, let's go ahead and jump into this conversation. Like I said, we're really excited to have you here today. Uh, NASA is awesome and does so much exciting work for clean energy. And uh, we talk a lot about the regulatory side of energy, the policy side of energy. Uh, kind of like the macro scale uh, of how clean energy works, especially in North Carolina. But we really wanted to get this R&D lens, this uh, this technology lens that NASA provides through the work that y'all do. So uh, let's go ahead and jump into this. How did you get started with NASA and what do you do?
2: So uh, I actually fell into the job at NASA um, about 15 years ago, and uh, I've been a, a science writer and I found a job um at NASA writing stories about how NASA technologies benefit our everyday lives um, and it what impressed me the most was the wealth of content and um how many different ways our lives are affected by space and and to be quite honest i I was um not a a huge space advocate i I considered space something kind of like um uh playing pirates um, or, or an obsession with dinosaurs, the, the kind of thing that, that you're eventually supposed to outgrow when you reach adulthood. Um, and I, and I often question, why are we spending money on earth when we have all these problems? I mean, why are we spending money on space when we have all these problems here on earth? Um, and through the process of, well, taking this job and writing some of these stories and learning this content, I realized that our life is touched by space, um, technology in, in innumerable ways. You know, I've, I've got NASA technology in my pocket on my kitchen counter. Um, if I get in a car or an airplane or on a train, there's NASA technology at play. I so started about 15 years ago when I started off as a, a junior science writer and worked my way up to where I am now, which is responsible for the agency's uh, technology transfer and commercialization efforts. Uh, so I NASA's intellectual property portfolio and and efforts to, to take the technology that we develop for our mission applications out to industry and make sure that Uh, we continue to provide public benefit from the space technologies.
0: Great. And so what does NASA's technology transfer program do? And for our listeners, can you tell us how it helps advance clean energy?
2: Absolutely. So NASA gets asked to do things that have never been done before. And in the process of uh, pursuing those missions, we have to develop uh, technologies that, that previously didn't exist because quite frankly, there, there wasn't a need for them. Um, so we develop on average about 1800 new inventions per year. And those are, um, new, uh, non-obvious practical, uh, solutions for the problems that we're facing. We, we, wow. we design, we engineer, we work, um, until we reach a place where the, the state of the art um, hasn't reached. We look around and we're, we're looking for a solution and, and they there just isn't one, we, you know, we, we Google it, we ask around, we, 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 <laughs> yeah. nothing exists. So we invent. And again, that happens about 1,800 times per year. So where my office wow. comes in is we take each of those inventions, we look at every one of them and we try to determine um, who else could use this and how could they use it. And uh, we do a commercialization assessment, we do a market study, um, we do a technical viability assessment, and we try to determine uh, what's the best way to get this out to whoever might might be able to use it. And in some instances, those um, uh, how the technology can be used is fairly obvious. For example, we'll develop a, a medical device or protocol to keep astronauts and safe um, in, in space, and we have humans in space, uh, we, the we astronauts are humans living in space and we're trying to keep them safe. And we also have humans here on earth. So the, um, there's a, a fairly obvious market for that, you know, keeping people on safe on earth safe too. Um, and in some instances, in other instances, we don't know how the technologies we develop are going to be used, um, here on earth. And that's, um, um kind of exciting, uh, as a challenge to figure out who, who can use this, this, this technology, for example, we developed a lightweight, high-resolution camera, um, for, uh, satellite applications that eventually became the actual camera that you currently have in your cell phone today. And we, we wouldn't have predicted or anticipated that, um, because, well, we didn't know that you needed a camera in your phone. <laughs> Nobody did until you had one. And then when you, right. once you had this camera, now we can't live without it. And it's more of a camera than it is a telephone. Um. So there's there's kind of exciting serendipitous uh, technologies that, that come about through discovery, um, and a lot of them have to do with um, uh, clean energy and the environment. So there's a couple of categories that we know we see our technologies finding homes in: uh, medicine, public safety, transportation, out the ground or air,
0: um,
2: um, and environmental technologies is another category that, that we know our technologies um, find homes in.
0: How would you describe the relationship between clean energy and NASA? And can you talk a little bit about how your patents and technology transfer work here? You can't
2: take an extension cord all the way into space. You can't take. Um, uh, you, you need to find a way to, to create energy and/or to store as much energy as possible when you're working and living in space. So inherent in anything that NASA is going to do, um, is finding ways to save and preserve and minimize the use of energy. Um, and that comes into play of, um, developing, um, uh, solar panels. Um, it comes into play of developing batteries. It comes into play of, of making things more efficient. Um, one of my favorite um, uh, electrical efficiency stories, and of course, we all have a handful of favorite electrical efficiency stories. <laughs> as is, as, um, as
0: being energy nerds, of course. <laughs> going back to the 1970s, and
2: some of these stories that we've got go back that far. And it's not it's not because NASA hasn't also continued to do cool new things. We have 1800 new inventions per year, and, uh, and thousands of technologies available for industry right now, and on, on our Technology.nasa.gov, tech transfer portal. Um, but the reason some of these stories are older is that um, it takes a while for something to really take root and become ubiquitous. Anyway, going back to the 1970s, there was an inventor named Frank Nola, who worked out of a Marshall Space Flight Center in Alabama, um, who developed this thing called the Nola Voltage Controller, named it after himself. And um, the simple version of it is it, it throttles down or increases the um, energy used by an electric motor according to how much load is put on that motor. So it used to be that before you had this energy, this voltage controller on an electric motor, it would run either um, at it would run, it would run at whatever speed you set it to. Um, so if you had something like an elevator. Um, it would operate as if it were carrying a full load the entire time. There was no sensor in it that, that adjusted according to how much weight it was lifting. So a full elevator would use the same amount of energy as an empty elevator. And so this device, um, the NOLA device, we are using it for simple um, uh, electric motor applications on our own. Um, we were able to license it out and now it's actually used in every elevator, escalator, and moving sidewalk that's been built since 1980. And uh, we know that is true because it turns out that there's there's only four companies in the world that make every escalator, elevator, and moving sidewalk, and we have worked with all four of them. So now, and this is kind of one of those head-tingling, um, uh, uh, brain-tingling um, uh, uh, strange concepts, but if you if you picture every elevator you've been on <laughs> or every escalator in your in your town or every moving sidewalk at every airport or you think about like Las Vegas, all of those have this device that NASA developed, and they operate according to however how much however many people are on it so that's kind of a, a phenomenal energy savings just based on some um, automation work we're doing.
0: Can you talk about any recent NASA projects that might result in future technology transfer to the private clean energy industry or software?
2: So absolutely. You know, As we take these next missions to um, the moon and then on to Mars, we will need to develop um, new ways to generate and store energy. We need to develop uh, lighter weight materials and composites um, that allow us uh, to save on launch costs. Um, as, as an example of, of, of the need for lightweight materials, uh, a couple years back in designing this SLS, the Space Launch System, that's going to take humans to the moon and then onto Mars, we literally changed the paint job on it to save 700 pounds <laughs> of, of 700 pounds of paint. Wow! Um, so the ability to make lighter weight materials. Um, is a is of significant concern to us those same materials then get applied to things like airplanes and cars and they make us um, and they save energy uh, so there there are known areas like that um, where we can anticipate that these future missions will will result in um, uh, new technology we 've also got kind of a neat new a system that will vibrate the dust off of solar panels for future Mars rovers.
0: Wow, and I that's could pretty anticipate cool.
2: that—that's that, a cool one, right? Yeah. And then my, my mind went to—you could keep your car clean forever. <laughs> <You> <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah. Solar panels. You could just. You, you imagine just the ability to. to uh, anyways, <laughs> but there's lots of different things that, that have applications. The, the kind of fun and, and unexpected part, though, is through the process of of doing these things that have never been done before and solving challenges that have never been um, approached, uh, we will develop new um, inventions and they'll have applications that we we can't anticipate yet.
0: Fantastic. Well, thanks for all the work that you do. I'm curious, what are you most excited about right now as it relates to clean energy?
2: The thing I find most interesting and the part that keeps me... um, enthusiastic about the kind of work that we do here is um, that we don't know what we're going to discover and how it's going to be used. Uh, The kind of odd, serendipitous um, technology that we developed for one of our um, solutions that then ends up having this profound worldwide impact that nobody has anticipated. And it's it's the unknown versus the um, um, exciting new... Front technology that that, um, that keeps me interested
0: well dan thanks so much for being on the show you were an awesome guest we really learned a lot about nasa's work and how it drives clean energy how it's been the source of origination for a lot of these clean energy technologies so really appreciate you joining us
2: absolutely thanks for having me it was a lot of fun
0: Our second guest today is a senior research scientist at the NASA Langley Research Center in Hampton, Virginia, where he is responsible for numerous projects estimating global radiative energy quantities such as surface solar energy from satellite measurements. He is lead scientist of the NASA Global Energy and Water Cycle Experiment Surface Radiation Budget Project, a project responsible for using satellite and other analysis to estimate the long-term surface radiation budget and components. he is also co-lead of the clouds and earth radiant energy system flash flux working group that produces near real estimates of top of atmosphere and surface radiation data products using the long-term and near real-time data products from these science projects our second guest leads several nasa-funded applied science projects that customize these data products along with meteorological input for the renewable energy related and agriculture industries. These applied science projects have led to the development of datasets and web interface tools for distributing solar energy in other quantities for the last 15 years. He completed his MS and PhD and Atmospheric Sciences at Colorado State University. We are so excited to have him on the pod today. So friends of the pod, let's give a squeaky clean welcome to our second guest, Dr. Paul Stackhouse. Paul, welcome to the pod.
3: Well, thank you, Ben. It's a pleasure to talk with you today.
0: Great. Wow. We are huge fans of NASA. So we're nerding out to get you on the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. And uh let's go ahead and jump into this conversation. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do at NASA?
3: Well, sure. Uh as as the introduction uh stated, I, I work here at NASA Langley Research Center in Hampton and and uh we've been actively involved in using satellite um based and measurements and earth observations uh, together with analysis and modeling to uh, look at the uh, essentially the history, reconstruct the history of the Earth's atmosphere and its radiative components. And by radiative, I mean Ben, of uh, the interaction between sunlight as it comes in and interacts with the atmosphere and clouds and gets transmitted to the surface, and how that surface then reflects that energy back up through the atmosphere, back out to space. We also look at uh, how that energy input to the surface uh, influences the uh, the energy called thermal infrared energy, which is uh, energy you can't see. You can if you have, say, nighttime vision glasses or something, but that is energy is very important to the Earth. It's a way that that the earth's atmosphere system cools to space so we look at the process of that energy as it's emitted by the surface and then absorbed and re-emitted by the atmosphere and then finally back out to space so we're looking at that balance of radiative energy and this this radiative energy really then looking at the variability of it in time is uh, really uh, where we get uh, the energy uh, for the climate so uh, that is our mission here, uh, to uh, assess and look at those processes.
0: And why would that data matter for someone like a utility-scale solar developer or someone who's interested in putting solar on their house?
3: Well, that's actually exactly uh, what we found. Uh, as we were doing this as more of a theoretical study and trying to understand these processes and how it might relate to, say, uh, general circulation and uh, and climate, well, we, we found that there was a really a, a tremendous need worldwide for this information. And we compute the amount of energy from the sun uh, that's incident that strikes the Earth's surface on a global basis. And we have a long time series of this. And um, it turns out there's a large community of people. Uh, those particularly in the energy, re- renewable energy field uh, and uh, solar energy uh, applications particularly, but not just there, but also those in the building industries and looking at uh, energy efficiency and even as as uh, folks like uh, the agricultural uh, applications all are very much interested in that sort of information, particu- particularly if we can couple it with uh, surface immunological information like just plain temperature and humidity and uh, estimates of the wind and the precipitation. So we've been able to do that uh, and uh, provide that information out to the community. NASA has a, an Earth Science Applied Science program, and uh, that program supported us to uh, initiate projects that to take all this scientific data I talked about and uh, make it available in formats and uh, ways that the community uh, can use, uh, hopefully immediately. Um, and so we did that as uh, long as uh, we've been working on this. I guess uh, actually almost twenty years now, and and uh, we've been first the. the users just wanted this data in terms of just for a particular location and uh, be able to put it in their spreadsheet to make some decisions on whether it's feasible to put a solar uh, powered uh, system in a particular location. Uh, So from there, uh, we've uh, initiated a website that's been supported by the Applied Science Program. Uh, We call it Power, uh, and it's power.lark.nasa.gov. And through that website, you can access the data products that we've been able to develop through uh, some of this NASA earth science research and uh, make those products available to help uh, folks interested in, in understanding the variability and the amount of solar energy that's incident to their areas. And to look at it in, in conjunction with meteorological information uh, and uh, and they can do it for anywhere in the world.
0: Wow. Well, thanks for doing that work. It seems like it can be very helpful to developers, to consumers who want to adopt solar. So thanks for that work. Now, let's let's backtrack a little bit and talk more broadly about why NASA cares about clean energy. How does clean energy help advance NASA's goals? And why is NASA so interested in clean energy?
3: Well, one of the goals of NASA is actually to... Uh study the earth and uh, earth and its atmosphere and its systems and another one is to make that information available uh, for societal applications Uh, and so this is very uh, very close to nasa's theme and mission and uh, part of it and um, not just to explore other worlds but to explore our own world and so this, this, uh, all this information—the uh, taxpayers, of course, have supported sending up these satellites and and the modeling efforts that go on into analyzing all the resulting data products. And this is a way that we can we can provide that data in a format that's a far more easy to use than say going to uh, one of our uh, data repositories and pulling the data down uh, in raw formats. It's it's a little tougher, although. NASA making a lot of efforts to even simplify all that process too. But this this particular website is aimed specifically uh, at the uh, renewable energy and energy related sectors, uh, and so we we uh, tailor the products uh, for the for the communities uh, in terms of their units, uh, and uh, in terms of uh, providing a time series up to daily averages and we go all the way back to the early 1980s and so we have uh, time series up to daily averages uh, all the way back to the 80s all the way to the present time within uh, right now through the series uh, flashworks project and uh, some of the modeling that we uh, with that goddard we're able to provide data within about five days of real time everything's working right so uh, that's our goal and so we we span all the way from present to uh back to the early 80s.
0: We're talking primarily about solar radiation so far. Does any of the work that you do contribute to wind energy?
3: Well, we do have uh we do feature wind uh data products, but our products are relatively coarse resolution uh at the uh, we we our data our website uh distributes data at uh a resolution a half half by half degree which corresponds to about 50 kilometers at the equator uh, 50 by 50 kilometer region and so that's a little course for a lot of the wind applications uh, but it still provides particularly if you're in a uh, in a location where that's relatively smooth like in the plains uh, it still provides some information about the background uh, wind fields and we do provide Uh, information up to about 50 meters above the surface uh, and the ways to estimate even higher. Uh, So that is at at least at some uh, first use but we always recommend those that are into the wind energy to to, uh, consider uh, you can use this as a first uh, cut but uh, you'll need to do some more detailed wind modeling particularly around complex terrain Uh, to really capture uh, some of the wind funneling and other effects on the wind. But for a first cut and uh, to get a sense, um, we do have those parameters available as well.
0: And would that also be featured on the website that you mentioned earlier? Yes. Great. So what can we expect in the future as it relates to clean energy data?
3: Well, we actually are expanding this work. You know, one of the things that um, since this is directly connected to NASA research, we are uh, regularly trying to upgrade these as the research improves and as our capabilities to deliver data products improve. So we hope with that within a year, we have plans to provide this up to uh, hourly resolution for at least the last uh, perhaps up to 20 years. Um And so that might enable some uh, in-day modeling of, uh, say, buildings as they try to integrate solar uh, technologies or other technologies uh, into their building models and uh, in their performance uh, models as well.
0: NASA's going to the moon in 2024. That's really exciting. Just out of my own curiosity... Are you, how is clean energy being taken to the moon and maybe even Mars?
3: Well, there's significant parts of NASA that do uh, research uh, on technologies in terms of uh, solar uh, technologies and harnessing solar energy for uh, satellite systems and uh, presumably also in the moon. Now, I'm not personally involved in that. Uh, sort of research. But um, I know that there are uh, folks doing that and uh, trying to lead to uh, new technologies to uh, more efficiently uh, use that energy.
0: Wow. Well, we are definitely going to be on the lookout for that. And again, thank you so much for the work you do, Paul. It's very valuable to a lot of our listeners who are clean energy professionals who I'm sure are either using that data or using products that have used that data. So thanks for the work that you do.
3: You're welcome, and uh, welcome any interaction that you have
0: and your listeners. Great, great. And uh, well, Paul, I think this is the end of our conversation. I want to thank you and NASA so much for coming on the pod. You were an awesome guest, so thanks so much.
3: You're welcome.
1: It folks, the 20th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast,
0: bringing the latest in
1: clean energy right to your ears. I cannot believe that we have just had an interview with the NASA. NASA. I mean, they have landed on the moon, and actually, today I learned that the first woman will land on the moon in 2024.
0: Yes, that is extremely exciting. And it'll be even more exciting for me when I take my SpaceX trip to moon in like 20, I don't know, 2035? Oh, well, let's,
1: let's, let's say 2035. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll give it a smooth 15 years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, Ben, what was your key takeaway from the show today?
0: My key takeaway goes back to something that Dan was saying, and that's when I asked him what he's most excited about. And what he basically said is that he is just kept going every day because of the unknown nature of all these spinoff technologies. You do R&D, but you nearly never know how your research is going to be implemented in the field. And I think that's so crucial for clean energy because... As technologies continue to develop, we really aren't going to know how certain research is going to be implemented until it's done. And then once it gets out into the private industry, it can take so many different forms. So I'm really just encouraged and excited for the future of clean energy R&D, especially as it relates to what NASA is doing. And uh, Jarvis, key takeaway, what is it?
1: Uh, My key takeaway was uh, what an enormous effect NASA's had on the technologies that we depend on every day. Uh, But more specifically, how dependent the energy efficiency industry is on the inventions created by NASA.
0: Yeah. I mean, when you hear about them shaving off like 700 pounds for paint. Correct. I mean, that is just such a commitment to really getting the the most efficient projects you can get off the ground. So obviously that goes hand in hand with clean energy as energy efficiency really is the foundation of clean energy. Correct. So thank you so much for listening, Jarvis. Who's on the show next time around? Next time around, we have Miss Tiffany Hartung on the show. Yes, and she is with the North Carolina chapter of the Nature Conservancy. We're talking about best practices in solar design. So we're really excited to share you that content. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. Have a good one.